Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, guys, welcome back to Growth Minds. Today, we've got the International Tennis Hall of Famer, Andy Roddick. Thanks so much for making the time to come on, especially during these times. Yeah, thank you for having me. I needed something to do. Yes, like all of us, like all of us. <laughs> this is uh, refreshing. It's not in person, but just to get to talk to someone uh, else that's uh, uh, very excited to do this as well. Um. So I know that the, just before we jump in, I know, I think I read somewhere, I think it was a tweet or something that was announced publicly that um, obviously we're going through some insane times right now, but I've read that there is someone that's personally that, you know, that has, uh, that has Corona right now. Is that, is that, is that true? Is that something that you guys are going through right now? Yeah. Well, yes. Um, it, it seems to be more commonplace. I and mean, there's been some people in, uh, there have been acquaintances that needed testing in in mid February and 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 weren't able to get it and it wasn't available. Um, you know, and, and obviously there are people inside of the tennis world who I know personally who have who have had it. And uh, so there's been different kind of frustration points with either having it or not being able to test and basically just acting as if you do have it. Um, you know, with 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 self quarantines, et cetera. So. Um, it's just a, it's a crazy time and to kind of see, uh, you know, a, a huge blind space as far as how we can fix something quickly. You know, it's not as if you can just round up the troops and all of a sudden it's gone, uh, like a lot of things. And, and, and so it's been a, it's been a weird thing to kind of, when it becomes personal and real and people, you know, it, 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 it just feels different. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, I think back in, even early March, the the thought of having someone personal to have this thing was just unheard of, right? And it, it doesn't really hit you until that happens. And just within two or three weeks, I think most people know at least one person or at least know another person uh, that's relatively close to them that has it. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a crazy time. But I know testing has been improved a little bit. Has that uh, person that is in your life, have they been able to get tested after that? Or is it just assumed that they've already improved by now? Yeah. So basically you go in and, uh, it was, it was my brother and he was on kind of the, the tail end. And so he had kind of already gone through 10 days of, and the symptoms were, were, were pretty in line and listen, you know, he's no doctor, but it, it seems like the, the loss of taste, smell, dry cough, body aches. And it was, it was kind of all there. And he had, He's a college tennis coach and had been on a bunch of flights the week before. So it was, mm. it, 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 it seemed like it was all there. But then when you go in, because testing was, was, was and is scarce, um, yeah. they walk you through it. And he's like, well, I actually feel fine now. You know, I kind of just want to know so I can tell anyone I've been around to kind of shut it down. And if they've been exposed to me and they're like, well, it, there's a certain level of, of almost pain that you have to be in at this point or your symptoms have to be kind of flared up. Um, and it seemed like he was kind of on the downside. So at that point, they weren't uh, willing to actually give him a test. Yeah, this 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 whole thing is, is so confusing because I've, I've I've just heard that people that have it 
especially the young and healthy ones, uh, uh, not all of them, but not all of them, but a lot of them, they don't have any symptoms. So it's hard to know whether anyone has anything. And it's obviously so close to having a cold. I'm sure a lot of people already know this, but it's, uh, yeah, it's just a very confusing time and sounds like we've hit the peak of it. That's the, that's the good news. Well, at, le- at least in New York, you know, it, it seems like at least there's awareness that social distancing is, is working and, and, and kind of what you were mentioning, and I'm, I'm certainly not a doctor, so let's yes, take this with yes. a grain of salt, but it seems like the entire thing is the, the asymptomatic carrying of it that makes it so dangerous. And the fact that you can have it and not show anything for five to seven days, it, that, that seems like it's the whole, the whole, uh, the whole thing, you know, that, that's what makes this thing crazy and dangerous. And like you said, most people will be fine from it, but it's just the, the, the lack of knowing and the fact that you can actually infect someone else, which is, which, you know, I, I don't know that we've seen something like this where you're asymptomatic, but you might be dangerous to, you know, my wife's uh, father is a type one diabetic. So oh, wow. we haven't been in contact with them. It's like our kids could have it. Our, our little four-year-old could not be showing a symptom, but could still be a a threat to his grandpa's life without even knowing anything. It's, it's just a crazy, it's a crazy thing. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for uh, <laughs> something uh, to happen with, um, you know, relative, relatively soon. Yeah. Yeah. The, the biggest risk is definitely for people that are around older people. Uh, well, I imagine just kids in general that, you know, you've got two kids, right? So it's just, it must be uh, something that you're hyper aware of. Um but how are they, I'm not sure how old they are, but are they doing schooling online then to transition through this time then? Yeah, so I have a, we have a four-year-old boy and a, a two-year-old girl. And it, it's it's kind of weird how this has played out because at first I'm going, oh my gosh, we have like maybe the worst ages to be home all day and, you know, with kids. But I actually don't think that's the case now because a four-year-old and a two-year-old, it's like they want to go outside and play, you know, they don't. Like they haven't actually experienced their own decision making and independence yet, right? So yeah. I, I'm talking to friends who have 15 and 17 year olds, and getting locked away at that age is just brutal. They're trying to actually have to deal with online schooling, not like fake school, like my son goes to, where it's you know they're actually playing for like real grades. Maybe they're juniors in high school, and what they're doing actually has relevancy past this pandemic as far as the future of their lives. So um, I started out thinking that we had tough ages and now I actually think it, they, they might be the easiest ages. Well, what are they doing? Cause I, I, I don't remember exactly what I was doing at two or three, but I have a uh, nephew and niece and, and imagine they're just kind of playing. So do they just do that online? They just screen share and they just play with their blocks and Legos or how does that work? Yeah. Uh, my son does this ABC mouse program where he's learning letters, which is fantastic. And he's actually into it. It makes it fun. And it, 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 it kind of seems like a game. So he feels like he's getting away with something, but there's actually, you know, uh, a value add. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, we're lucky they can go out. We, we can go outside. We can go for walks. You know, you do that kind of, it, it's kind of groundhog day. Uh, something we've done is normally we kind of get through our day. They have school and the, and the whole, the whole deal. And then before they go to bed, they can watch a, a small show or or, uh, or something like that. We've actually flipped the day. So they start out kind of in a mellow state. Maybe they watch a show in the morning and we can actually have coffee and have like an adult conversation. Normal life, And yeah. then spend the rest of the day outside. Yeah, so it's we're kind of learning as we go as far as uh, scheduling the days to uh, maybe mitigate uh, tantrums or, or, or anything like that and, and maybe give ourselves a little bit of peace of mind and a little bit of, bit of time also. 
Yeah, just the amount of consumer behavior change that has happened just out of force and that will continue need to happen is just astounding. Uh, but I know that you took classes online in high school. So this is something that you're kind of used to, right? This wasn't like completely jumping into the deep end in some ways. Or was it? Well, I don't know. I, I went to I went to a normal high school. I was just traveling a lot. So I would it was, it was more I'd get my work ahead of time, take it with me, go play, you know, junior French Open or Wimbledon, then I'd be back three weeks later. And and so my school was great about working with you. It was less online, more just not present at school. Um, oh, gotcha. You know, but I, listen, I, 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 our kids have it tough. You know, they, they have uh, two parents, ni- or two parents, neither of which is college educated, trying to homeschool kids. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know that they're, uh, you know, I, I will say, I, I think it would probably be unanimous across uh, the country and the world that teachers deserve a raise after this. Oh, my God. Yeah. Amongst most service workers, too. Yes. And anyone that's in the front line right yes. now. Uh, my mom's a nurse and my uh, cousin's a doctor and they're almost on a daily basis. They're they're in the front lines. And it's yeah. yeah I mean, Ca- I'm in Canada, by the way. So Canada is not, not as bad as the U.S., but oh, my God, it's just uh, astounding what's happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, speaking of online, I, I've also seen recently stuff that's pop up that um, there's a lot of uh, people that are just starting to learn things online, particularly tennis. Like I've seen uh, Serena, that's he's, she's teaching a class on Masterclass. I think um, there's a few other major big tennis players that are starting to like teach these online classes. I'm skeptical a little bit. I'm not sure how someone can learn tennis online and how, how useful that is. What, what are your thoughts around this? Just given the whole concept of learning online. Well, I, I think we need to, we might be overvaluing the education it provides and might be undervaluing the entertainment that it provides. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think, but, but also, I mean, to be, to be fair, when you, if you were to ask 10 tennis players how they started playing, I would guess that eight would say I started against a wall or, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of wall beside your house or so. It's not completely unfounded where, you know, people think, okay, tennis, you need two people to, to actually play a match. Well, that's true to actually learn. Uh, I mean, I, I, my, my brother used to go to tennis lessons and they had this, literally a wooden wall uh, in Texas with like some concrete around it. And that's where I started playing. I would just hit the ball against the wall and the wall doesn't miss very often. So it's not, it's not the worst. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's some logic to it, I guess. Um, so you started playing, how were you first introduced to the sport, by the way? Uh, my, my older brother played, my, my parents were pretty, uh, they liked being in a team sport and they liked being in an individual sport. Um, I thought they, they taught different valuable lessons, right? Individual sports, obviously self-reliance. It's pretty straightforward. You're not allowed to shuffle blame around to your teammates or your coach or whoever else, you know, and, and then teammates, obviously they thought, uh, from the human side, getting along with other people, having someone's back, being responsible to to others was was beneficial. And so um, it, it was as simple. There was a I was born in Nebraska, and there was a a tennis club close by, so it was just basically proximity. Um, huh. And so I was I was lucky, but my brother was good. He was uh, you know, all American at Georgia and played the Junior Grand Slams and everything. So I'm uh, six years younger than him. So you know anything he was ten and really good. So I was four. I'm like I want to you know. That, 
I, I want to be like him and I want to just do what he does. And so it was, it was kind of just lucky that we lived, uh, we lived close to it because it could have been really any individual sport. Interesting. So you, you, I guess having your brother play and kind of watching him as you grow up was definitely a good inspiration. Um, what, what, what was the difference you think between you and your brother? What happened uh, that you made it to the professional leagues and he just decided not to continue? Well, choice was a lot of it. Um, you know, I, I don't know that he was ever predisposed to wanting to travel for 45 weeks a year. I mean, everyone he played against, I don't know that he would have been, you know, one in the world. But um, yeah. I, I feel very confident that he would have made a, he, he could have made a living playing. But traveling the world 45 weeks a year, you know, grinding the stresses of it, you know, when you might make after expenses the same amount of money if you as you would if you took a different job and didn't have to actually turn your world upside down to travel the world. It just didn't appeal to him to do that. Um, you know, he, he was certainly capable. I'm, you know, four inches taller and I could, I could hit a serve 150 miles an hour. I think that was probably the, the basic mm. difference. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Height, height's definitely a big factor in tennis. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I, and I, I learned a lot from him and my parents did too. You know, they, they, you go through kind of the something once and, I, I, I got the benefit of all of the mistakes that either he made or they made with him through his kind of tennis journey. So I was, you know, kind of the way that I saw it was was best case scenario. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and I imagine just like any sport, really anything that you do for the first time, you're, you're not you're not making a lot of money. Obviously, there's a lot of struggles. Was tennis a sport where you picked up the racket and you played a few different matches and you're like, OK, this is something that I can really be good at or were there a lot of doubts in the beginning stages and did you just have to learn how to get out of that yeah but it's i think it's almost like any business though there's like different levels of of, of successes right like i knew yeah. i was really good at like, like nine years old i was number one in the city of austin in 16 and unders right so yeah. i knew i was good but you know then it grows you go outside of your state and then you go to nationals and maybe you are you know top five Right. But you're not dominant. And then all of a sudden you work your way up and you're in international competitions where you're just one of the guys in a 64 person draw. And there's, you know, some phenom who, you know, you're good in Austin, but, you know, you, you travel outside of your comfort zone and you're actually not that good relative to what else is out there. So, yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't know that I thought about it in those terms. I, I certainly wasn't one of the phenoms who was guaranteed success. And you could see it at a young age. I was small, like grew kind of late. Um, but when I did improve at like 17 years old, it happened very quickly. You know, I went from, mm. you know, 60 in the world in juniors to one in the world in pros in like four years. So it was when it did happen, it happened very quickly. But I wasn't one of the people who were, you know, signing with an agency at 13 years old because it was a foregone conclusion that I was going to make a living doing it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So 17 and 18 years old, that's that's like when the big uh, peak happened for you. When you, when yeah, you I think so. I, I mean, I, I, I was, I won a couple of big junior events, and if, if you could bottle confidence, right, and you, you, you have a certain skill set, and you know you can hit a serve so hard, and you can run so fast, and you can play, but if you could just bottle confidence, I mean, it would be, uh, it, it would be a different look. And somehow, I just kind of got on a roll, and it, it, it lasted for a while until it was you know, just part of the belief system that I actually knew what I was as opposed to wondered what I was uh, as a tennis player. And so, um, uh, again, it, I, I wasn't the best 
in the world at 16 in my own age group. And then, you know, at 18, I was, uh, you know, I think I ended that year when I was 19 at top 15 in the world in pros where wow. you're actually, you know, making runs at majors. And so it happened. I kind of just got a rush of blood, started serving big and, and it was exciting. And I felt like I was kind of like a downhill snowball for a couple of years. And then, you know, that turned into a, you know, 13 year career. That's insane. Yeah. When you, when you achieve success that quickly, um, I don't know what it was like for you, but did it feel like, did it feel like you truly deserved it or belonged to be there? I'm asking this because I've had a, uh, another athlete, Dennis Rahman, who was playing for the Chicago Bulls. And yeah. his story is that <clears throat> I think it was in high school or the beginning of college. Uh, he grew a foot. So he was five foot six. And within a year, he grew to six foot six. And all of a sudden, like there wasn't anyone paying attention to him. Uh, forget everything from athletics to, to girls to, to people that were trying to, uh, that were bullying him in the past. Like none of that, all that just disappeared, right? And like, and yep. he was scouted to go into the NBA. And within another year, he just like, uh, he got all these things basically from a Ferrari to a big house and all this notoriety. And it allowed him, uh, it just basically made him feel like he just didn't deserve all of it because all these things came at once. Um, but I'm not sure. Like, I love to get your side of things when that happens. Maybe it's different because you've played uh, since you were since you were relatively younger. Yeah, I also think you're at different points in life. Whereas my kind of, you know, when your 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 worldview changes, but that, that happened for me at 17. Rodman, I know he went to he went to college, and so dealing with the, those sort of successes at 22 is probably a lot different than 17. You know, five years at that point in life is. I, I don't know that I was that introspective <laughs> about <laughs> about where I was and what I was doing. I was like, oh, this is great. I get a credential. I can I share a locker room with, you know, Andre Agassi. I'm like, oh, my God, I wonder if yes. I could, like, talk to him. You know, so th those things were still – there were still, like, the innocent parts for me. I didn't know anything mm -hmm. about – I wasn't playing for money at that point. It's not like the NBA where you all of a sudden sign a contract and you get drafted and, you know, you know you have $20 million coming your way. Uh, you, you kind of – you you, you – make money as you go through the rounds. And I, uh, you know, I, I signed a, a endorsement deal with Reebok, but it was, it wasn't as if I was buying Ferraris at that point. I, I you couldn't, it, that wasn't uh reality. I was just, I was just playing better and I was getting into tournaments. I thought a courtesy car picking me up at the hotel and taking me to the, the, the tennis tournament was like the best. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could get used to this. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it just happened quick. I, I just, I didn't really pay attention early on to uh i mean it was a whirlwind you know and then all of a sudden that moment takes you to you know you you turn 21 during a tournament you win and then you're three months later you're number one and hosting snl and it just it just like happens quickly you know and you, mm. you you're you're kind of just in it and it never stops because you want to keep momentum i imagine it's some like someone who has a, a hit song and they want to put out the next single right and they don't really stop to think about what's actually happening right yeah. you just want to keep building on momentum and um you know, so it was it was a bit of a, a blur over those those three or four years. Well, that that must have been a crazy uh, revelation for you, just to be on SNL at the top of your at the, really at the top of the world at that point. Um, were you did we, were you growing up watching SNL at all when you were when you were a kid? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wasn't you know I wasn't religious about it at all, but I mean, I, I think. Every, it, it's kind of the, a crazy connector across every space, right? It's it's something that 
athletes have participated in, politicians have participated in, businessmen have, have hosted. So it's kind of this this weird outlier in pop culture that brings in people from every avenue, right? Mm. You don't have to, you know, if you look dumb, it's still funny television. If you're really great at it, it's still funny television. You know, it, 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 it's almost uh, it's it's a kind of meeting ground across across uh, different professions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, recently it's been definitely way too political, but uh, someone needs to make fun of what's happening. So I'm glad. Even well, we I live mean, in a reality it, show, but <laughs> I think uh, you know, there, there's certainly been avenues that have you know thrived during during uh, the chaos, and certainly uh, there's no shortage of eyeballs for political satire. Yes, yes. Uh, so I know you mentioned Agassi as well. I know he was a big idol for you growing up. How how did you guys first develop that relationship when you were just starting out? Obviously, he was probably at the top of the career at that point. What was it that, I guess, allowed you guys to develop that kind of friendship? And, and uh, was it like a mentor-mentee kind of relationship? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were. De- I was 17 and he was on the second version of his career, which is kind of, as we know him as this responsible businessman, philanthropist, number one, you know, number one in the world. I didn't see the Andre. I don't know if you read his book or not, but I didn't see the kind of dark years of, of, of Andre at all. Um, and, and it probably just grew out of, um, I, I was a practice partner. Actually, I, I, the first ever pro match I won was in Miami one year. I was still in high school and second round I played, Andre and it was uh-huh. like center court. Yeah. So I'd never, and he came up and said hello to me in the locker room five minutes before he went on the court. And that was the first time I had ever spoken to him. I'm just, I am like, I, I have like a frog in my throat. I can't even speak words. I'm like, I made all the bad wardrobe choices with him with like neon spandex when I was eight and the whole, it was, uh, it, it was, it was horrendous. But, um, so we go out and we play. And then after that, uh, I think I just fit the niche that he needed where, I was good enough to practice with, play sets against, but I didn't really have a professional schedule yet. I had to finish school. I had to kind of get through the junior ranks. I kind of, you know, I was a thousand in the world, but I could probably play like I was a hundred in the world at that point, if that made mm. sense. But you yep, still have yep. to go through, um, you know, a, a rookie still has to earn a spot on a, in the starting lineup of whoever drafts him, right? So I was still in that process where, um, and, and so basically anytime he needed a practice partner, uh, I would, I would just go, I would always just say yes. And, you know, it, it kind of just happened in bits and pieces and I didn't really talk much. I just did whatever he said and put in, put in the work and, um, it kind of just developed from there. And then all of a sudden, uh, I'm on tour and we're playing against each other. And mm. then the relationship takes a different dynamic where we spend off seasons traveling and playing exhibitions together. You know, I was one in the world, but he was still the show, you know? So it was, it was, it, it took on kind of different, the relationship, grew over time and then it became about philanthropy and then it became, and he was always just a sounding board. And it was nice to know that I had access to someone who had definitely seen everything that I was either seeing or was going to see. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, I I asked this because it's so relevant for people in business or just anyone that's in their careers. That's trying to find someone that is a step ahead of them. They're, they're trying to find someone that's a mentor and, a lot of the times, it's, it's it's I guess it's not necessarily like like the karate kid style, whether you're trying to find like uh, like a master that's trying to give you all the tips in life. A lot of the times that I've noticed, it's, it's through an osmosis. You can learn so much 
from someone that's just doing it. Just they don't even have to say anything to you. Just just be around them. And well, it sounds like you hacked that. You're right. And he wasn't he wasn't preachy. Like there was no there was no uh this is the way you do this, kid, or like, you know, anything like that. It was more we would travel and play these events and it's Andre's show at that point, even before I was, you know, ranked really high. Um after which it was still his show. Um, but you know, I would go and he would be, you know, he, he'd be in like a foul mood and we'd be on the way to the courts and all of a sudden we'd be in, you know, I, I don't know, we'd be in Birmingham, Alabama playing a one nighter. And, you know, on the way there, he'd get there and his manager would come up and he'd go, okay, who are the, who are the main sponsors and what are their first names? And I'm going, okay. And then he'd be in a foul mood. He'd get in the room and he knew that these were the people that, you know, were, were paying the money, putting on the event, brought him here, had already done work before he had even shown up. And it was, Oh, I'd like to thank Bill and Susan for their work on this. I'm so happy. And it was like, Oh, he, he understands it. He's, he's able to, you know, be respectful and project that respect. And it was, you kind of start ticking off these little things and just seeing how he operated behind the scenes and what a, what a pro he was and why he resonated with people and why people felt emotion watching him. Um, you know, and he had this great comeback story and, um, he was aware of, of, of all of it. You know, he, he was, he was certainly, uh, it, it was certainly, certainly intentional. Um, and I say that in the, in the best way possible. And, you know, I, I'm going to your point of learning by just seeing, I was going, okay, that's, that's, that's a really smart way to operate. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah. were you actively going out just, especially in your early days of building that relationship with him? Were you actively going out and reaching out to him to ask for advice, to ask for mentorship? Like, how, how did that really go from just starting out that five-minute conversation that you had when you were wearing your nylon uh, <laughs> outfit to yeah. really, uh, I guess, I, I'm not, like, it sounds like in public, at least, you guys are, you guys have developed a really close friendship. Yeah, and it, it, and now it's not, it's not as if we talk regularly or anything, but I, I know... Uh if I have a question and, and now I, at least I feel like I've learned a, a lot of the lessons from him. So it's certainly not one where, you know, we're going on vacation together. It's not, it's not that sort of relationship, but early yeah. on there was certainly an open door policy with him. Um, you know, and it, it was, it became a little bit different when we were playing for the same titles and, and all of a sudden <laughs> that, that, that kind of faded a little bit. It's, Hey, what do you think about this? He goes, Hey, go handle your match. I'm going to handle mine. You know, it's like, okay, I understand. I'm like, I, I, well, you, I, I maybe that. he was trying to give you the wrong advice too. You want to be careful well, about that. Like, right? <laughs> at a certain point, it's like, Hey, you can come with me to lunch, but you're not going to eat my lunch. If that makes sense. Hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Well, what was that like when you first played him, played against him? Like you were, you looked up to him your whole life and here you yeah. are, you're right in front of him. Was there like this competitive side in you where you really did want to beat someone that you've been around your whole life or was it more like, you know what, like there, there's someone that this is someone that I look up to so much that you kind of lose the competitive side of you. Cause there's two ways to go with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, well the, the first, I, I mean, two out of the first three events that I played on the ATV tour, I ended up playing Andre in, in the States. And like, I, it was just, it was just, it was just kind of weird at that point. I don't know that I believed I was good enough to actually mount this competitive charge so there was uh, probably an element of, of, of deference, you know, where I'm, I'm looking across and I'm just watching his mannerisms and watching the way he walks and the things that I grew up and grown up seeing. And I'm, I'd have to catch myself. I'd look across the court and I'd be like, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, you're playing against them. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's so cool. Um, you know, but then it was then it became different. Um, you know, I remember I played 
Pete Sampras the year after I played Andre the tournament in Miami and actually won. And that was an inner struggle because I, I thought I could win the match, right? And so then I'm like having to play this in between uh, that you were kind of just referencing between, okay, I have a job to do. I've played tennis, you know, most days of my entire life. Let's try to treat this like another day. But then, you know, it's it's Pete Sampras. And it's right. like, so I, I don't know that there's a perfect answer that it was either or, but it was certainly a, a, a combination. And you would have to check yourself a little bit from kind of idolizing those guys in the moment. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Just mentally, you I imagine you have to get so prepared. Uh, were there things that you would do from at least at, at the peak of your career all the way to the end? Do you know well, were there things that you would do on a regular basis, like uh, things that almost are individual to you that are pregame rituals that you have to do or visualizations, anything like that, that would help you get just mentally and physically ready for, for any of these matches? I tried to create um, like a comfort zone at different places around the world, right? So I wanted it to feel familiar when I went back to London. So I tended to eat at the same three restaurants. I tended to uh, use the same transportation services. I, I wanted to see familiar faces. I wanted to feel comfortable in different places. I was a, a, a victim of habit. So mm -hmm. if I could, I'd like to practice on the same court. I would like to eat at the exact same time before matches. Maybe it's two hours before. And that's tough to time because sometimes you're following other live matches. So you can't. You, it, it's kind of a best guess. Um, you know, you, you put on headphones. I didn't want to, I, I was pretty angsty before I played, so I didn't want to talk to anyone. Uh, so there were, there were things that I definitely, uh, used as control mechanisms, um, for a world that was kind of out of my control at times. Um, but I think it was just, uh, you know, I, I didn't like staying at different hotels. I wanted to stay at the same one. I wanted to kind of do things and I wanted to come back the next year and for it to kind of just like slot in to what I, what I had done before. Um, so I, I don't know that it was, you know, I had to, you know, tie my left shoe before my right shoe or, or, or superstitions, but I was ridiculous about creating habits and sticking to them. And if they didn't go that way, it was, it would, it would bother me. Right, right. The, the familiar faces and the familiarity is, is, was something that really struck me is, I guess you want, especially because you're traveling so much that if you're going to... I don't know, Dubai, let's say you want the similar familiarities that you would have when you were playing in your hometown. And I guess that's like your meals, the hotels, yeah. um, faces, I guess, like some of the people that you would be around. I stayed in the, I stayed in the same room in New York for, for the Open for a decade. No so way. Really, yeah, yeah. And so, but wow. it's great. Like you come back and you you make the same turnoff that you, it just became you know, like you walk around your house, you don't think about where are the cups, you just go to where the cups are. Right. And so mm. for me, it was like, you know, you take the right turn off the elevator, it's right there, you know, so it, I just, I was a fan of kind of doing things like that, where it kind of felt normal. If I, I, I didn't have to kind of, I could just kind of plug and play in different places. Gotcha. Gotcha. Was that the same thing with like locker rooms as well? You would try to get the same spot when you were in uh, these different stadiums? If I had done well. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I never had the same locker room at the French Open because I always sucked at the French Open. But um, you know, Open or Wimbledon or whatever, I would, uh, I would, I would try to do the same if it had, if I felt like it had, uh, you know, quote unquote, worked the year before.
Gotcha, gotcha. Now, I know, I know meditation is like a big thing now. Um, I think LeBron was publicly talking about how he uses, well, he used to use Calm. Now I think he's the sponsors. I guess that's why he's publicly talking about it. But um, that was that's like a big thing that he's getting other athletes to do. And I'm, and I'm sure other athletes are taking advantage of it. But um, this is like a recent thing. Like before, it was kind of weird to do meditation mm-hmm. like there wasn't any apps around like if you told people that you were meditating they probably thought you were some sort of like a monk and it wasn't like this yeah. big thing um was that were there any other were, were you doing some techniques like meditation to help mentally prepare or any visualization because me- meditation can be general yeah. i guess right um you know it's 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 weird because i'm not sure what the actual uh you know, Webster's definition of meditation is, but if it's as simple as blocking everything else out, listening to something and in a space where, you know, you're not going to be bothered. I, I, I did a lot of that, you know, whether it was, you know, music before matches, if it was a long day and a rain delay, I wouldn't go up and, 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 and socialize in the player's lounge or in the, the lunch spaces. I'd kind of tuck away and, and tune out. So maybe that's a form of, of, of meditation, of checking out, of being selfish, mm. of being aware of, you know, kind of taking yourself out of it. But um, a, a, as far as like a, a formal process uh, daily in, you know, it, it, I, I wish we had that amount of control over our schedule, but because to, to create a habit, you know, one night I would play at 10 PM the next day, you know, you play at 11 AM in the morning and then you fly to Dubai and do it all over again and the time wow. change and everything else. So I, I don't know that it was, it, it was logistically, uh, uh as simple as creating a meditation habit. And a lot of times there's some hustle and bustle and, but come for sure you had to get away and create your own kind of space. Yeah. I think, I don't know what the definition is either, but I, I think it literally is just the, the practice of meditation I've heard is, is just to do nothing. Like that's the point. Yeah. It's, it's to like let your thoughts come in, let your thoughts come out and just not react to it at all. Uh, which I imagine is so important when it comes to certain, such a fast-paced sport like tennis because you don't want to be emotionally reactive yeah. to these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know especially I was uh, it was hard playing night matches. So you'd, you'd be scheduled for second on, uh, you know, people who watch U.S. Open night sessions, you'd be scheduled second on, you know, from 7.30. So you could either play at 8.15 or you could play at a, you know, 11:30 PM, depending on if the first match went long. Right. So it's this, yeah. it's this not knowing you don't have control over it, but you're also sitting in your hotel room all day before that. Mm. And it's not like you can get walk around cause it's hot and you lose fluids and you sweat and it's, you know, dealing with people and the whole thing. So, um, definitely kind of creating that vibe of calm. Um, cause I was worked up all day before yeah. that match. So I really did have to work at kind of, uh, creating a ritual, um, that that may have had similar qualities to uh you know a meditative state yeah yeah i mean i can't imagine the amount of stress and pressure uh that every player has to go through in order to compete at their highest level just because i i have so much respect for one person sport like tennis because it's number one it's a very zero-sum game it's like you either win or you lose and it's not like basketball or soccer or football where you've got other teammates that you can kind of share a loss with or a mistake with. It's like literally just one person 
in some ways, I guess it gives you a lot of accountability in terms of what you can do. And a lot of the skills I imagine will transfer over to what would happen uh, after sports. I, I understand this was like a big, um, a big thing that you really advocate. I, I think Agassi also talked about this as well, where you mentioned that the biggest issue for most athletes uh, just in general is that you, you spend a third of your life not preparing for the next two thirds. And yep. for most athletes, they're, entire purpose given that a lot of athletes they put all their purpose and their identity into becoming the best at one thing and for every athlete it comes to an end a lot of them comes to an end uh, you know within their 30s which is they've got 60 70 years more i mean yep. science and tech you never know what's going to happen these days but yeah it's uh it comes to an end and they have to figure out how they're going to make a living, they're going to figure out how they're going to have to act in society and who they are and what they need to be. And um, it's, it seems like uh, that you did a pretty good job of it in terms of figuring out from the business side of how you're going to handle your finances. It, you did it while you were playing. Um, and, and it sounds like you've, you've kind of made peace with this life after tennis. Um, mm -hmm. to talk to us a little bit about what that transition was from when you were actually a player well you know i, I knew what i was going to do we had uh, you know, the foundation was i run a charitable foundation in austin texas called the andy roddick foundation and that was there that was already in progress um we started a, a commercial real estate company where we deal in uh triple net leases and we have you know properties in in, in 12 different states you know 70 some odd properties and um, it, it, it's, it's super capital intensive, um, finding good location matters, but it's not as if I'm a startup entrepreneur that takes all your time and it's, you know, 16 hour days and you, you, you hear the people that only work and don't sleep. And that wasn't something that I could actually do while I was playing. Sure. Um, but a, applying capital, you know, taking your, your, your five to 7% cap rates, you know, trying to time the market correctly, um, Though that was something that I could do, um, mm. you know that was that was that was feasible. So uh, for me, I didn't. I, I don't think I stressed out too much about what was next because I was already kind of doing it. I knew I had, you know, two or three or four pillars that I could spend my time on, and and mm. where I wouldn't feel lost. I think uh, there's two things that I would uh, kind of strongly advise against is waiting until you're done to figure out what you're going to do next. Um, I would apply some thought to it. I would see what's what's realistic. I would stay away from, um, you know, the, the, the vanity investments of, you know, I invest in a restaurant because I can take my friends there and look cool. I think a lot of athletes kind of, uh, or I want my name on a car dealership or I want, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it, there's this attachment to that identity that they're scared to let go of. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have Burger Kings in Missouri and a Starbucks and a train station in Chicago and a Lowe's and you know, Oklahoma somewhere and none of which is associated with me at all. Um, you know, so maybe that was easy because I wasn't trying to parlay my identity into a different space. Um, it was, it was all just, you know, it was, the math was just straightforward. You know, you have the capital, you apply it here, you wait and 10 years later you might look smart. Mm. Um, the, but the, the one thing that I think is a weird adjustment for a lot of athletes is when you are, playing professional sports, and if you are uh, good at them, it's kind of one-way traffic, right? Uh, 
endorser endorsements come to you opportunities come to you the money comes to you because of what you're doing right and so you don't actually have to go out and pursue your agent brings you things right there's an equipment manager who you know for pro sports teams make sure that your stuff is there for you right and so to go out and actually pursue information or to go from being an expert in your field to actually being the dumbest guy in the room which is what you should be post-career that, that if you're not, then you need to pursue different, different brains. Um, that traffic flow is probably really, really intimidating for an athlete. And, and maybe ego plays a part of that. Whereas for me, I loved it. Like I, I, it was refreshing to me to do something that made me uncomfortable. Um, being on a tennis court may be uncomfortable because I was playing against the best in the world, but just the general physics of it made sense to me. I could do it in my sleep. Um, but I, I actually, for whatever reason, I was attracted to uh, learning about things that were outside of my comfort zone. You know, so I didn't, I didn't really cover tennis. I didn't, I have, didn't stay in tennis. I don't really have much of an interest um, in coaching. I love it. I respect it. It's, 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 you know, been the part of my life that I that I can remember the most. You know, uh, outside of my family. So, um, but just the general kind of your social norms have to shift post-career. And I think a lot of athletes don't like that. Yeah. Whenever I talk to high performers, uh, this goes beyond uh, athletics. I think um, it's, it's the pattern that I see is like when, when anyone's performing at that high of a level, it's hard to get that same feeling back from that first match that you won or that first 15 seconds of stepping into this big stadium at the biggest tournament that you've ever been on or for a business person, the first uh, sale that you may have made from your business that is now, you know, doing hundreds of millions of dollars or millions of dollars. And a lot of people have to find uh, tap into a new industry or tap into something completely new to try to find that similar feeling. It's probably never going to be the same. I imagine businesses doesn't have the same adrenaline rush that, gives you but i imagine you learn to appreciate these different things in your life that's not just about tennis or finding adrenaline yeah i mean i think you find you know i you know you're spot on i I will never ever replace the first 30 seconds after a big win in front of a crowd where there's energy and people you know i remember in my my retirement press conference and i kind of retired uh randomly and, and and surprised some people with it um and so they're like, well, how are you going to replace that? I'm like, I, I it, to my mind, it was obvious that I'd be foolish to think I could. Mm-hmm. So that, that would, the question for me wasn't how do I replace this life? It's like, okay, what's next? Um, and you know, I, I think, you know, you, you, you might see some athletes get into some, you know, either risky behaviors or, you know, maybe confusion because they are trying to replace that. It's just not, you know, to your point, it's, it's not possible. Um, whereas, you know, what motivates me is being, you know, I, I'll never do anything as well as I did tennis, but being good in different areas and maybe surprising someone along the way is is exciting for me. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Uh, it, it, it sounds like you're sounds like you're doing you're making some big moves in, in business, and uh, it, it's it's something that I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are learning from you, uh, whether it's athletes or other people, because I think. The move, the move that you made, I think it can certainly transcend amongst different industries as well. There's a lot of 
uh, people that are employees right now that want to start their own business, but they think that they have to quit and then start their business from, from day one, mm -hmm. similar to, you know, your reference about having things come to you as an employee, there's a boss that's giving you tasks. There's everything's kind of aligned for you and you're kind of entering into this like brand new world where you have to be in control of every single thing as an entrepreneur. Um, I think, uh, I don't know if you read Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, autobiography. I forgot what I it's called. Uh, but he, he talks about how he was already a millionaire as a real estate uh, investor before he got into acting. And oh, that's it. I didn't know that. Yeah. He, well, he was bodybuilding. And as he was bodybuilding, he started to buy different real estate properties in California with his partner. And he... Uh, was doing like mailing businesses. The point is, he had uh, he he was he was a millionaire basically as he was going into these auditions, and it gave him complete control to take the time to take what roles that he wanted, and allowed him to really uh, differentiate himself in many ways compared to these like desperate looking actors that were trying to go to the every every audition. Yeah, um, it's very similar to to like what what. Um, to, to how you describe your retirement, where you got to choose uh, exactly when you decided to retire because you, you've had a plan, you had a future that you were already planning. So it was in, within your control. You you decided to go, you know what, this isn't for me. And um, and, and not a lot of athletes can, can be in that same position as you. Yeah, and I didn't. I don't know that I operated from a place of fear of, of, of what I was losing, right? So mm. for me, it was very clear. I wanted to, I wanted to, try to win another slam and I wanted to, you know, but it, it became, when it became apparent where I had lost the belief system of my body being able to compete for two weeks and beat who are and go through a draw, which you might have to take out the three guys who have since probably become the three best players ever. Um, once I didn't wake up with the upside of that, or at least with the belief system that I had the upside of that, it would, it became a very clear decision. Um, I, I, I mean, I won two out of my last, five tournaments on tour but they weren't the tournaments that i wanted to win and i know that's 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 probably brutal to hear for someone who you know wants to win one tournament but that's just where my mind space was and um i was excited to get i've done this since i was five years old so i was i was excited to kind of uh get to something different but you i think it's a i think it's a correct observation that i did have this um i don't know if it's like a a bit of an insurance policy because we had already kind of started down the road of, of, uh, and had an established real estate business. And, um, you know, the, the angel investment side is, has been, it, it's way more fun than real estate, real estate created right. everything for the, the next career, but it's, it's just not, it's just not that fun. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. And it's more proven, right? So you kind of have a system that's going and, uh, probably something you can, uh, I imagine you can kind of delegate that to someone that really knows what they're doing as well. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not, I, I'm not the the mathematician behind the the, the entire operation, but um, you know, we we were my partner and I were able to realize, you know, capital. Uh, it, it's we're in kind of the throes of a, a new recession, but during the last recession, we had capital and there were there were market opportunities. So, um, yeah. you know, one thing I think that I've I've done well is is ask really dumb questions once. Right. So I, I don't care if someone thinks I'm a dummy, but the next time I, I won't be. And I don't I don't have much of an ego about that. Yeah. Yeah. That that's definitely seems to be what um, what differentiates you as well. 
Um, how, how have you been looking to diversify your, your investments? Is it mostly real estate and, and angel investments that you've been looking at these days? Yeah. So, you know, we, we have our typical, we spread out, you know, the you know, basic stock portfolios and, you know, not all with one person. You have to spread it out across, you know, doomsday scenario. But um, 70% of, of, of my net worth is in our real estate company. Um, yeah. And then, but I spend, you know, at this point, I spend 4% of my time on that. You know, oh, wow. so it's just, it, it's a, it's a bit of a machine at this point. It's we have a pretty decent system of of how we want to look at properties, uh, what markets we want, and, and so at this point in time, it's I am able to delegate someone who understands uh, the the system we kind of we kind of look at. So um, the angel investing side is really really fun because even if I don't end up doing a deal, I'm learning about a new product space or a new lane, and that will serve me well for one that I do end up doing. Um, mm. So. It, it just kind of going through the process, vetting different things, looking at different pitch decks. There, there there's always value. You know, there, there's something you learn. You know, if you if you go through five or six a week, there, you're you're going to pull something out of every single one of them. So that part is way more exciting, but it's it's certainly not the bedrock of uh, of, of of my post career. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, what 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 is the next? Um kind of next few years kind of kind of hold for you over the next five years you, you obviously fully transition out of tennis you're fully yep. in business and, and philanthropy mode um what what do you see kind of yourself building because you're still so young at this point right yeah um i don't know i mean i, I think i've i've taken uh, a, a more active role in if i think i have an idea connecting the dots on on team building right mm. so knowing what the best thing that an athlete or you know, the best thing an, an athlete can take advantage of is, is access, right? Not everyone walking around can get a call back from, from someone they want to call back from, right? So an athlete who does not take advantage of access to information is an idiot, right? Mm. So I've built up a network. It's not one-way traffic. I'll do anything I can for you if you help me out, you know? So it, it is a, a trusted situation, but Something I, I enjoy doing is, is trying to, if there's an idea or if someone's working on something and they'll call us, you know what, I actually know someone who's, who's great at, 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 at what you need. So the team building process, so being a little bit more involved from the ground up, I'm, I'm not a CEO, I'm not a founder, I'm not an entrepreneur, uh, I am an investor, but I, I think even just from traveling the world at a young age, I think I'm able to pick up on what someone's value is, what they can add and how they would work with someone else. So I, th I think, uh, uh, that part's been, been fun for me. And I see, I see more of a, a role like that moving forward. Right. Right. Yeah. One thing you've definitely not been afraid of is just picking up the call, picking up the phone, calling someone that, uh, that you think will be able to help you. Mm -hmm. Uh, this also, this also translates to your relationships. Right? So this is how you met your <laughs> wife originally. Like you really go all in on this. <laughs> Again, I, I don't know that I was. I, I probably expected rejection. Which once I came to terms with that, the the phone call to my the random phone call into my wife who I didn't know at the time was uh, was easy. <laughs> you know, once <laughs> once once I was comfortable with worst case scenario, there wasn't much of a gamble. <laughs> so what happened? You you saw her in like a magazine or like a TV, and, and you're just like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna call her. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's about right. I uh, I uh, she used to do this. My wife Brooke used to do this uh, football show with uh, this guy, Dr. Z, and they would basically, basically make their weekly football picks. And I watched it every week. I was, you know, oh. hardcore fantasy football, the guy, and, you know, it's this beautiful Southern girl who's talking football and gambling spreads and all this stuff. I'm like, 
That's the one. I'd like to meet. I kind of want. No, it wasn't even the one. I was like, I, 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 I want to take her to dinner. Like, I want to. I, I, I think she's very attractive. She's extremely well spoken. She's not taking this old guy shit from him. I mean, she's kind of throwing it back at him a little bit. I'm like, this is. I, I, I'm into this, and she didn't call me back for six months. So I thought it was dead in the water when <laughs> I had that that magical voicemail one day. <laughs> wow! Did you ask her what changed her mind after six months? Uh, I think it was boredom. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think she was the way that she tells it is that she was talking to her her manager at the time and just saying she was living in New York, you know, alone. And, um, you know, she was she was younger at the time. And, you know, and he's like, well, I don't know. Just call that guy back. And that was like basically it it sounded like she just needed entertainment. (laughs) So I think it was more like, let's let's try to go on a date with this guy, even if it doesn't work we can laugh about it afterwards between us. Right. So we can, you know, that conversation with her manager. So I don't, I don't know why I, I, you know, I think it was just boredom. And then she's like, okay, well let's, let's try calling this guy. Let's see what happens. <laughs> well, the good news is this is timely advice because everybody's bored at home right now. So this is advice to any guy out there. We're going to be, uh, <laughs> so, so, we're going to be some matchmakers today. Andy. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Well, th- listen, Andy, thanks so much for making the time. Uh, we, we always end off with um, giving the audience with a small but actionable piece of advice that they can apply. Um, these are people that are trying to pursue their own path. They're either artists, they are entrepreneurs or people that want to be entrepreneurs, um, people that are just trying to get through the nine to five. But especially during these times, what's um what's a small but actionable piece of advice that you think they can take to, you know, help them get through this whole process that's happening right now? So this process and 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 past it, and this is so as it pertains to the the pandemic we're in, it's probably more of a virtual take, right? But uh, my dad used to always tell me uh, from the time I was a kid, and he was a, a farmer from Wisconsin who, you know, ended up. Uh, you know, turning himself into a, a, a bit of a businessman, but you know, he, he was a guy who ran a farm when he was 13 years old and then, you know, ended up doing fine. But um, he, he said, surround yourself with smart people and ask a lot of questions. Those are both choices. Mm. And it, it, it's still something I, I kind of do to this day, you know, surround yourself with the, you know, the, the, the people that you, uh, aspirational, right? You know, yeah. if, if you, you have a lot of people just telling you yes all the time and you're the smartest person in the room, you're, you're doing that from a place of, of ego and vanity. And so uh, I, I would say, I, I always repeat it, surround yourself with smart people and ask a lot of questions. Gotcha. Gotcha. Or whether it's business and relationships, pick up the phone, make that phone call. <laughs> I think so. I mean, gosh, <laughs> yeah. like, is there anything worse than like wondering? Right. Like, at least, you know, I don't know. I, I, and maybe it's the clarity you were talking about with, with tennis from earlier, where it's like you win, you lose. I, I've always kind of appreciated at least knowing where I stand. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Powerful dice. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for tuning in. Uh, make sure you guys stay tuned for, for next week's episode. And, uh, thank you guys so much for, for tuning in. Thank you so much Andy, for, for making the time. Yeah. Thank you, man. Stay safe.
Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.